Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe. My name is Hayden Clark, your host. Uh, This is the show about Christian apologetics and theology, and this week we will uh, be discussing the uh, conversation and debate around Calvinism and uh, the five points around Calvinism and soteriology. Uh, But I am super excited to introduce uh, my special guest to you. He is the author of Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. His name is Austin Fisher. Austin, how are you doing today, sir? I'm great, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I, I greatly uh, appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your day to uh, do this. Uh, um, I, I believe I heard you on uh, Unbelievable, Justin Brierley's uh, podcast over there, being interviewed and uh, with him, and so I appreciate you coming on. How is uh, South Texas? It's good to have a, a fellow Texan on the show. Well, technically, we're, we're Central Texas. Central here. Texas. Right. Yeah, I want to get that right. Okay. Yeah, A little bit north of Austin, um, north- and so I'm... An East Texas boy at heart was raised a little bit north of, of Houston, and so when I first came to Central Texas, I couldn't get used to the lack of real trees because you're from <laughs> East Texas. You have 200 foot tall pine trees. Yeah, pine trees out there everywhere. everywhere. And so these trees here, they're they're shrubs, man. They're only like 20, 30 feet tall. So it took me a while to get used to it. But Central Texas has its own kind of rolling hills beauty that. I've come to love. It's a good place to be. Yeah, man. Uh, I was born and raised here in North Texas, and then I so you went East Texas, Central Texas, almost kind of South Texas, and I went North Texas. And I moved out to Lubbock for a little while, which was a, mm. a, a huge mistake. I don't know if you've ever been. I'm out not there. a not a big West Texas guy. <laughs> no, All the West man, Texas gosh. listeners, I'm sorry. We'll pray for you guys and girls. No, yeah, I'm guns up. Go Red Raiders. I love it, Lubbock, but and Texas Tech and all that, but. West Texas was not for me. Whenever I moved back to North Texas, I was like, what is this moisture in the air? This is crazy. <laughs> it's so dry out there. It's just awful. But, uh, hey, again, I, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, so uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to uh, those who uh, may or may not be familiar with who you are and just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, what you do. Yeah. So uh, my name is Austin Fisher. I'm the lead pastor at Vista Community Church in Temple, Texas. And so it's basically right in between Waco and Austin uh, on I-35. I've been there for about seven and a half years uh, at this point. It's a non-denominational church. Um, I grew up with kind of a Baptist and Methodist, and then my wife uh, grew up Episcopal. So I am uh, come from a pretty eclectic denominational sensibilities. And then our church has got people from kind of all over the spectrum like that, Episcopal, Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, you name it. So we've been there for about seven and a half years, um, and then I also uh, like to write. I've got two books, Young Restless No Longer Reformed. That was the first book in, um, gosh, I think 2013. Um, and then a second book called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Midst of Doubt that came out uh, in 2018, about nine months ago. So I'm married with two little boys, uh, four and a half and two and a half. So nice. we are right in the thick yeah. of parenting right now. <laughs> I don't have any kids yet. Um, I've been married as of today for, uh, want to get this right, five months. So I'm, I'm basically important. a professional. Uh, <laughs> I got a lot to learn. I've already learned a lot about my own selfishness and depravity. Um, but uh, it's, it's going great. Um, well, if you've learned that you've got a lot to learn, then you basically got it down, bro. Just yeah, that's don't a, ever forget that. That's the thing to not forget. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good point. Uh, well, we are uh, here to discuss, uh, you know, your journey through Calvinism and, um, you know, the book that you wrote around that called Young, Restless, and No Longer Reform. So just, uh, you mentioned your, uh, you know, kind of the background that you grew up in, Baptist, Methodist. Um, 
did you grow up uh, Calvinist or how did that how did you how did you get into Calvinism in the first place? Sure. Um, most people who don't grow up, you know, in and as I say, you know, I kind of came of age in the '90s, which was when there was uh, certainly like a Calvinist resurgence going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. But I, I didn't ever really grow up uh, anything like a Calvinist. I think most of us grow up intuitively experiencing ourselves as having free will, whether or not we do have it. It's beside the point. We we think we have it, mm-hmm. and so unless you're really clearly uh, you know, indoctrinated with it early, that's usually not somebody's default position, is all I'm saying. And so I, I wouldn't have grown up uh, a Calvinist or anything close to it. Um, and so it was not until I was in, you know, seventh or eighth grade that someone reached out and really mentored me and, and changed my life. And he was a strong five-point Calvinist. And again, at that point, I didn't have terms for what it was. I didn't I didn't know what it was. I just know that he gave me a book by John Piper to read. And so I read it. And then I read the next one. And then I read all the John Piper books. And that's when passion was really like at its, you know, kind of uh, height and heyday and popularity. So, you know, Louis Giglio and Matt Chandler and Driscoll and all these people. And again, I didn't know that they were Calvinist. Right. Um, most of them, with the exception of Piper, aren't that up, up front with it, weren't that up front with it. I just knew that I was buying what they were selling, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I was. No, this is a good point, on. and I, I don't want to interrupt, but I'll forget if I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, is in my experience, and uh, which is kind of similar. Um, I didn't go through this in the '90s. Uh, went through it in like the 2010 or later. I don't know. Uh, or but uh, experiencing the writings of John Piper, all the names you just mentioned, uh, just later. So John Piper, uh, Matt Chandler, and for me, uh, David Platt. Uh, yeah. those kind of guys and I didn't know anything about Calvinism either I came to be a Christian uh, when I was uh, 20 years old I grew up in a Christian home but really didn't faith became my own or whatever um, when I was about 20 years old and I read through the Bible for the first time in my life and then was like well I need some help understanding this and those are the books and the authors that came along with me trying to go you know deeper or whatever the correct terminology is and the way you just described it is is just like perfect the way that I experienced it, which was it it seems to have kind of snuck in the back door like it wasn't up front it wasn't like you know uh, David Platter or Matt Chandler aren't writing you know um, here's the five points of Calvinism like John Piper is um, mm-hmm. but they sneak it in there every once in a while and then I just found myself going hmm where'd that come from yeah. you know is that pretty typical or is that what kind of what you were describing oh absolutely um, and that's you know one of the things I've always appreciated about about John Piper and we certainly have had our differences especially when the first book came out but but I appreciate Piper's consistency and forthrightness in, in my opinion he is much more upfront and consistent than a lot of the younger preacher pastors were and, and I just have always felt like you know the, the the five points and in particular of course a couple of them they're so determinative, you know, of, of who you think God is, that they're too important to sneak in as fine print. Um, that's personal uh, opinion there, but I do certainly think that that happens a lot because if you got those, you know, if you were taught double predestination from like the beginning very clearly, most people are going to go, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, man. I'm not going to yeah. be able to sign off on that. But if you buy into kind of the system as a whole, right, and, and that takes root in you and your sensibility and your imagination and your hermeneutic is, is formed in that way, then if you kind of learn about the ins and outs of something like double predestination years later, then you, you've been formed to be more receptive 
to it. Um, I think it was R.C. Sproul talked about how double predestination should be like a family secret. You know, that you, yeah. you, you don't just air for everybody. You, you got to wait. Man. Another you pretty wait honest people one. People are in yeah. the family, you know, and then once they're in the family, you can kind of air that stuff. But um, to do it early is is difficult. And, and a lot of the popularizers don't mm. do that. And I've been on the record that I think they should be much more forthright about that because it's important. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think if you start with kind of the dichotomy of, well, you know, we're, we, we want to have a high view of God and start with, yeah. you know, statements like that. Well, I can buy it. It's all it. about God's I can glory. Buy into yeah. that. Everyone's yeah. going to buy into that. And then later, you know, bring in the, the determinism mm-hmm. or the double predestination, that sort of stuff. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, so uh, since it's so uh, not intuitive or, or, you know, what was it that kind of brought you in? Uh, you mentioned a, a personal mentor. So kind of describe how that happened. So he was a Calvinist, and um, he was just the first, like, really bright, smart, faithful Christian that I had met who had taken the time to mentor me. And, and so the very fact that he was just meant that, you know, I was going to be because he was, like, the first person who I really saw following Jesus well and faithfully. Um, but in particular, um, you know, when we believe something, it, it's usually because it has captured us, you know, with a sense of, like, its, its beauty and not just its truthfulness. Um, and so in other words, we tend to believe things that we want to believe. And so why did I want to believe Calvinism? And I think that's what you're getting at. Like, why, why, What is the aesthetic and moral appeal of something like Calvinism? And I do think it is that in a very, um, you know, consumeristic, therapeutic culture, the emphasis on God's glory, that it's not about me and what I want, my desires, it's about God and what God wants, God-centered theology, not man-centered theology— all that stuff is enormously appealing in a very humbling kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I think there was this huge resurgence of Calvinism, in particular in the evangelical world, in the, the 90s and early 2000s, was because it was um, a potent pushback to you know what Christian Smith called uh, what moral therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm. And so that was certainly an appeal for me, is I was like, yeah, I, I do kind of suck, and I'm self-centered, and this idea that it's not all about me, it's about God, is enormously liberating and, and humbling in a really healthy kind of way. And so I completely bought into that vision and thought it was beautiful. And then once I thought it was beautiful, then the hermeneutic, you know, lines out pretty easily. And you can quite obviously make a Calvinist case um, from Scripture. People have been doing it for, you know, a couple thousand years. And so it's really, though, again, more about you have to buy into the moral vision mm-hmm. behind it, the theological vision. And I think that's the power of it is – as an antidote to right now moral therapeutic deism. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, pretty true with the the contrast where there's a there was a lot of and there still is you know a lot of I don't, I don't know if I, I would go to, so far as to call it a moral therapeutic de- deism, but uh, mm-hmm. that's that's pretty strong and it may be accurate. But uh, you know the seeker sensitive et cetera et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. the pushback was this Calvinism. And uh, like you said, it it, uh, it made a lot of sense to a lot of people, and still does. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that that that's kind of how you got into it. Oh, and I was going to mention this is kind of you know you mentioned it, you it had to be beautiful first before the hermeneutic and the exegesis and the scriptural support for it actually came. Um, if you wanted to get to the order of things, and that's kind of the an approach to apologetics that um, I think has actually beneficial as well. For a lot of people today, uh, they're not necessarily the questions they're asking about Christianity, that is skeptics and non-believers. Uh, they're not necess- always asking for like uh, uh, 
uh, evidence. Like, you know, give me the Kalam cosmological argument. Give me the give me the 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 minimum facts of the resurrection. Even though I love all those things and I talk about them all the time, uh, most of the questions I get is, you know, it, it would basically be like, is Christianity even good? You know, is mm-hmm. it even, you know, why would I even want to do that? So, yeah. I th- so I think you're you're exactly right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, As Piper yeah, one time even says, um, I don't remember where this article is, but he, he says before someone will accept your theology, your theology must first make their heart sing. That's what mm-hmm. he said. And again, I disagree with him on a lot of things, but on that particular point, I could not agree more. And again, that was the power of Piper's version of Calvinism um, was that he was able to explain Calvinism in a way where it didn't look you know, frankly, horrendous, but it looked beautiful. And again, he, he mainly channels Edwards t- to accomplish that. Edwards did a great job of it, too. And so this picture of, like, the manifold glory of God revealed through this juxtaposition of harshness and tenderness and mercy and wrath and all that, and that was the genius of Piper's approach, was to make Calvinism look beautiful. And that's why so many people bought into it. And I could not agree with you more when it comes to the apologetics. That's a lot of what the second book is about, um, that... Uh, nowadays, you know, we get fixated on, um, you know, is Christianity true? And that is an important question. But a question that is just as, if not more important, is, is Christianity good and beautiful? Mm -hmm. And in particular, in the age we're in, like, apologetics has shifted over the years. You know, like, early on, most apologetics was about historical stuff. And that was a powerful argument, because somebody could say, yeah, you know, my Aunt Susie saw resurrected Jesus, do you want to go talk to her? Right, And that's a powerful argument when someone's Aunt Susie saw resurrected Jesus. You and me, our Aunt Susies, they haven't seen the resurrected Jesus, and so those arguments aren't as persuasive. You move to the Enlightenment, you get a lot of really rational arguments because that was very persuasive for people. Now you move into a late modern or postmodern culture, and a lot of the rational stuff just doesn't really <clears throat> move the needle much for us because we don't really believe in objectivity the way Enlightenment people did. Mm-hmm. And so what you get is arguments focused on um, – you know, theological aesthetics, and that's Hans Urs van Balthasar and David Bentley Hart and people like that. Well, even uh, I was listening recently, even William uh, Lane Craig has been on the record saying the most powerful argument that he ever gives for Christianity is the moral argument itself. Like, uh, you know, so I think that is kind of in line with what we're talking about. I don't think he meant the exact same thing we're talking about, but it makes sense now that I think about it that way. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, b- back to your story. Uh, so you 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 buy in uh, because you have a mentor who um, you know like John Piper has the ability to make it look uh, good and beautiful, and, and then later kind of get the, all the doc, doctrinal stuff, uh, work all that out. Describe what it was like um, being within the Calvinistic systematic or within that um, that mind frame. Um, I think of a lot of was there a stage cage? I, I guess is what I'm getting at. What was what, it? A was stage there? Cage? Yeah, was there? Were you? Was was there a stage cage or where a stage where you were that stage cage Calvinist that we tend to think about, like on the? Oh, uh, uh, I got you now. I had not heard that term before. You I'm never probably, heard that term. I thought that I was. I not heard it. I'm no. talking to the Calvinist guy. I thought for sure you heard that term. <laughs> the ex-Calvinist guy. Uh, yeah, the ex-Calvinist guy. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, one of the things that I again appreciated so much about Calvinism is a, it really put me in my place, and so it ruthlessly purges you of self-centeredness, all that. And then it also gives you a very strong sense of like certainty. Again, once you buy into the Calvinist system, you get a very clear sense of black and white. And, you know, God is the all-determining reality, and anything that happens is God's will. And that's difficult, but it's also comforting to know that like that was God and there's not another explanation for yeah. it. And, 
just all in, it gives you a very uh, stark kind of contrast of this is truth, it's objective truth, this is what it is, it's difficult, but own it and you'll be fine. And in a, in a world, uh, again, that's rampant with, with skepticism, and I was you know, sorting through all sorts of skepticism at that point, I appreciated like the very firm lines and categories that Calvinism gave me. Um, and so that was part of the appeal. And then also Calvinists, that, in particular the new Calvinist movement, they've been very good at organizing. And so you've just got this huge network of like people and resources to draw from. And so I felt all sorts of at home and comforted in it. And that was what I needed, I, I think, as you know, a typical, typical postmodern kid who was trying to find his way in a very ambiguous world and wanted something sure and certain to cling to and that's again part of the that's more of the epistemological appeal of, mm -hmm. of calvinism it's the certainty and the clarity of it all yeah for sure um it it, it, it makes a lot of sense you know like you said again contrasting um the the times that we live in um whether it be relative or subjective kind of epistemology and then to have something like calvinism which which really does like you said it accomplishes erasing all of that doubt and uncertainty um and so that that's another aesthetic uh, appeal to uh, there as well um, mm -hmm. so where did the where did the turn begin to happen for you as as far as mm, maybe I'm wrong here <laughs> um, was in college um, somewhere around my probably junior year and you know I'd known that uh, specifically double predestination was an essential part of Calvinism for a while um, again, some of them, Piper is very clear about that, Edwards, Calvin himself. And um, I think it was when I began to like let the repercussions of that really set in, right? And I had to sort through, okay, if, if I believe in double predestination, which you have to do to be a consistent Calvinist, I have no patience for inconsistent four-point Calvinist. Um, <laughs> then that, that means a few things, right? So, so we've got a God who would ordain, render certain that the overwhelming majority of humans would be damned in hell forever for sins that God had ordained that they commit, mm -hmm. right? And like, obviously there are layers to that, and, and most people don't take it down to the basement, which is when you hear double predestined explained, it's usually like, well, all of humanity's fallen. God graciously decides to save some, and then God kind of passively passes over others, but that's still just because you know the reprobate. They're just getting what they deserve. They're just getting what all of us deserve. Yeah, this is always how I hear it put, mm -hmm. and so yeah. and and that doesn't sound that bad. It's like, well, I mean, we are all fallen, and we all do yeah. deserve to be, go to hell. And so, if God only chooses to save X amount of people, well, He's still merciful. Yep, uh, absolutely. And, and so, it's a great explanation. Yeah. Um, but it, it again, it, it, it neglects something you cannot neglect in Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And again, Calvin could not have been more clear on this. Edwards could not have been more clear on this. Piper could not have been more clear on this. And that is that, again, God in Calvinism ordains the fall. God desires that, the, that, again, all of humanity will fall and be deserving of hell. And so that's when you really begin to get into the justice question is that it's not that, you know, humanity has just fallen and God lets most people get what they deserve. It's that God wanted humanity to be fallen. God made certain, however you want to explain it, that mm -hmm. humanity would fall. And then God's going to damn humanity forever for 
the fall that God ordained and desired that humanity would would commit and fall into. And you obviously bump into some pretty severe problems of, of not just justice. Justice is the minimum, right? Because Christianity doesn't just tell us that God is just. It tells us that God is infinite love. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard enough to square that with God being just. It's, it's impossible, in my opinion, to square that with a God of infinite goodness who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so that was when it all kind of started to unravel um, for me was just when I let the full repercussions of double predestination really sink into my bones and had to ask myself if I really thought that was consistent um, with Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I want to come back to that uh, point of the story, but first I wanted to just ask you, does anybody, and I don't know this, that's why I'm just asking, does anybody try, um, any Calvinists uh, try to say that no, God did did not uh, determine or... um, Render certain is that what you were saying? Uh, yeah. The uh, the fall itself that Adam did have free will at that point, and then after the fall, there was no more free will. Is that a thing? Uh, it, it is, but only for Calvinists who don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> that would be me. I'm the Calvinist. I don't, that doesn't know <laughs> I don't mean to be harsh, um, but all the best Calvinist thinkers throughout history. So that's late Augustine. You know, so Augustine very late in his life. Calvin. Edwards, uh, and then people like Piper, um, they're all clear that you can't have your cake and eat it too on that. Like if God is the all-determining reality, then all means all. And the fall has to be folded into, you know, God's determining decree. Now they would want to, you know, um, distinguish between like, you know, um, different decrees and different wills of God. Um, people do explain it differently, but at rock bottom, you, you have to affirm if it's going to be a consistent Calvinist that yeah. God ordained. At some, fall. Yeah, at some point there's going to be a deterministic antecedents, as I've heard it put before, and no matter how you try to parse it, somewhere there's going to be something God determining this or mm-hmm. uh, rendering and even more it. so, God God desired it. Yeah, right? yeah that's that, that would get into the love and the... Uh, the love uh, aspect of it, like you mentioned, for sure. So whenever you're uh, having these doubts, I suppose, um, is this just you thinking through this rationally, or is this somebody else who's now on the scene kind of posing these questions to you as a Calvinist? Hmm. You know, I've never really thought about that. I mean, it was mainly me. I I, I did have uh, a professor who was, I think, you know, when you're a Calvinist, um, a lot of times you, you feel like you've been let in on this secret, you know, and that yeah, yeah. there aren't really any super thoughtful, articulate other theologians out there who, who would disagree with you. And so I had a, a theology professor who was just a brilliant guy. And he was the first person who really hit me with some questions I couldn't quite answer. Um, and so his name was Steve Oldham, um, fantastic theology professor. And so, yeah, he was kind of like my theological sparring partner who hit me with some questions that I just really struggled to make sense of. And then through that introduced me to, you know, C.S. Lewis. Most people don't know, but he's got some very pointed and helpful thoughts on Calvinism in a couple different books. And that was very helpful for me, which eventually introduced me to like Roger Olson, who's been a mentor for me and was a professor at, at Truett. Um, and, and Roger obviously is like the probably best known Armenian in the world. Yeah. Uh, so he was very helpful as well. But that was kind of later on down the road. Yeah, he he really is. I've got a couple of his books on my uh, list uh, that have just been pushed to the the front of my list to read because I've never actually read Arminius or any mm-hmm. Arminian theologians or people who call themselves Arminians. I've read a lot of theologians who Calvinists call Arminians, but they're not. Um, but uh, um, I did. Um, um, what was I going to ask? You were talking about, oh, I wanted to get back to your story. So you were now um, 
down you had a, a good uh, college professor that's what i was going to say sorry this is uh relates a lot to, to my story it's so it's so interesting hearing you describe all this because it's uh something that i have experienced too although i myself uh never would have called myself a calvinist so i grew up in a mm-hmm. southern baptist church and i didn't know the terms or anything like that but my pastor now looking he was probably a traditional southern baptist soteriology mm-hmm. um and so whenever I actually started taking Christianity seriously, like I was talking about at age 20 and reading these these other uh, the young pastors who were clearly Calvinistic, um, every once in a while I'd hit something because they weren't that upfront about it. And I'd say, that doesn't fit with what I remember growing up with. And, and, and but then I thought, well, these guys are, you know, authors and famous or whatever. They must be smarter than the, <laughs> the, the small town pastor I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never full sell was like, okay, I'm a Calvinist now. Yeah. But it, the reason I never did was because I too had a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Fort Worth named Dr. David Allen. Um, are you familiar with him at all? Yeah, I've seen his name. We've never interacted, but yeah. I've seen his name around a couple times. Yeah, so he uh, writes a lot about the extent of the atonement. He has a, a magnum opus on the extent of the atonement. Just goes through the historical, the theological. It's very, very thorough. It's like eight hundred something pages. It's a, it's a mind blower. But it's really good. Anyway, so um, got to interact with his teachings, and I thought this guy's intelligent, and mm-hmm. he knows the text inside out. Um, Maybe I don't have to be a Calvinist after all because I really didn't want to ascribe <laughs> to what they were talking about. And yeah. then, uh, like you mentioned, C.S. Lewis, I came across some of those writings. was like, C.S. Lewis wasn't a Calvinist woman? Uh, William Lane Craig is out, out, um, outspoken about not being a Calvinist. Uh, yeah. uh, Ravi Zacharias is also um, outspoken about not being a Calvinist. So I found some, like, I was like, okay, these dudes are smart, um, and they're certainly smarter than me. So there's clearly room for debate here. And that's really what gave me the, the okay to say, okay, I, I can say I don't necessarily agree with the yeah. Calvinist system. Because I didn't even feel like it was okay to say no because I'm hearing things, which I'll be honest, I just recently heard at church the other day, that if I disagreed with this, that I was robbing God of his glory. Oh, yeah. And no, that I was mitigating God's standard, worship. Standard I even heard somebody right? just say that yeah. to disagree with their position on um whether faith precedes regeneration or vice versa, if you think that faith precedes regeneration, you might as well be a humanist. I was like, I can't believe you just said that in public. <laughs> but so, yeah, the the professor was a big deal for me. Oh, yeah, man. Like, again, I like to, to help people understand because I think this is really important that if you grow up in the evangelical world, which you did, I did, um, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast did, you especially if you grew up in it in the 90s and early 2000s, you grew up thinking that something like Calvinism was kind of what you had to believe. It was the consensus of the church. And once you get out a little bit and you swim in a bigger pond, you know, you realize that, that Calvinism is actually an overwhelming minority position in the history of Christian orthodoxy. Now, that's not to say that that means it's wrong, but it is helpful to understand that. In the bigger stream of what has been historic Christian theology, Calvinism has always been an overwhelming minority position in mm-hmm. historic Christian orthodoxy. And so it is helpful to understand that, and I've always found it helpful to remind our dear Calvinist brothers and sisters that they are, in fact, the overwhelming minority opinion. Yeah. That does not usually bother them because they're used to being you know, the small elect yeah. group, but it is helpful to remind them of that. No, that that is actually very important. I want to just double stress that that. Once I allowed myself to think, I found 
uh, a plethora of theologians and thinkers. And again, for the people who may be worried about thinking this kind of way, uh, just in case we do have people listening who are still in that um, mind frame of, well, I hear what you're saying, but to disagree with them would be to uh, ascribe to a, a, a lower view of God or whatever. Yeah. Uh, just hear me out and, and hear what Austin just said. The overwhelming majority of Orthodox Christians. So we're not talking about swimming in so big of an ocean that you're, you know, you actually are out here peddling with uh, uh, people who, are, are, you know, might be heretics or something like that. I, I'm talking about the overwhelming majority of historical Orthodox Christians. And, um, and this was something I was going to get to later, but we can get to it now since it's kind of a good segue. But did the historical, um, you know, the, the fact that this was actually, first of all, it was late. Uh, you mentioned Augustine. That's, 400, that's after 400 years of church history. And, and, and then from then on, it was still a minority uh, position. Did that have anything to do with your decision as well? Because it, it made a big difference for me when I learned that. When I learned that even the Calvinists agreed that it begins with Augustine, really, you may back up one more person. It's St. Paul, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so you go from St. Paul to Augustine. You know, yeah, 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 because yeah. for me, I thought in my head, well, you'd have to maintain, and, and again, I want to be fair as well, but if you think that Paul was saying this, and then the next person was Augustine, then you have to maintain that the people who sat underneath the feet of the apostles themselves and listened to them from their own mouths got it wrong. Yeah. And everybody else for 400 years also got it wrong until Augustine, who was a Manichaean for 10 years or however long, he's the one that got it right. And he's the only one that got it right. Yeah. Is, is that not accurate? I mean, it's a very complex picture. It is, it is fair to say that Augustine, and it's late in Augustine's career, was the first person to really be the first Calvinist proper. Again, Calvinists would argue that it's there in Paul. And again, you can make that argument, certainly. But Augustine's the first one to clearly, systematically put it together. And so, yes, um, to your question, like, I, I knew I couldn't be a Calvinist anymore no matter what. I mean, if, if my choices were like Calvinism and being Christian, I don't know what I would have done at that point. I just knew I couldn't be a Calvinist anymore. It was incoherent. It made God impossible. Um and so I had made a decision to move away once I realized that this is actually what kind of the class, class – and I don't really call myself an Arminian. I would not be an Arminian, but I think classical theism is a much better way to understand it. Arminianism is a much later expression mm -hmm. of the classic Orthodox tradition. Um, and when I realized that that was, in fact, the majority consensus of the church, it was enormously liberating uh, because you realize, oh, wow, I'm not like a some fringed lunatic here. I am walking – kind of with the historic consensus of the church, which was a little less about um, emphasizing free will. Like classical theism has really not wanted to emphasize free will. That's just kind of a part of the equation. What classical theism has wanted to do is deny some of these central tenets of Calvinism, which are things like double predestination and a kind of schizophrenic Christology where Christ you know, comes and appears to show us infinite love, but the Father has this other secret plan. Um, and so that's what the classical tradition is more about. It's not about doubling down on free will. That's kind of a modern thing. It's more about denying some of the central things that Calvinism wants to affirm. Well, on the flip side, uh, you, so you said uh, you you wouldn't call yourself not an Arminian, but you also don't call yourself an Arminian. Mm -hmm. Is this, is that really just um, um, what would be the purpose of not calling yourself an Arminian? I suppose is what I'm getting. Is there anything over there that you kind of do want to? Uh, deny or say, yeah, I'm not sure about that. 
Um, for me, a Arminianism, you know, kind of comes up as a um, um, position that's trying to deal with this soteriological debate, you know, about how that works. And that, for me, is just not a terribly interesting question, you know. Like, um, there are pieces of soteriology that are very important. We should all agree on. But when it comes into the minutia of how it should all work, can you lose your salvation or keep your salvation, those questions have just never been that interesting to me. And I think the classical tradition uh, emphasizes some other things instead of this obsession with am I saved or am I not saved that um, is just much more appealing to my kind of theological palate. Mm -hmm. And so Arminius was kind of unclear on whether or not he thought you could lose your salvation. Um, But on the whole, it's the soteriological obsession that is – oftentimes part and parcel of Arminianism. And it's understandable. It was kind of grew up in that context that I don't find particularly interesting or or helpful. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, I've got some primary documents that I need to read because I haven't done any kind of deep dive on on Arminian uh, himself. Um, But it sounds like maybe you would know more than I do. But from what I've heard other people say, like, uh, you know, the non-Calvinists that might come back and say, the Calvinists... um, description of Armenian himself is uh, radically mischaracterized is what I keep getting from people which is kind of driving me to well I want to go read these documents myself um, and then even sometimes I find myself listening to an actual Armenian or a non-Calvinist describing what Armenian uh, Arminius uh, wrote and, and, and believed and I think he sounds more Calvinist th- than I am you know what I mean is that actually true or like I said I haven't read much of Arminius but uh, I mean uh... Yeah, in part it is. Like, again, Arminius is a product of this age where there are these intense intense soteriological debates about the extent of the atonement and it's just inner, like, mechanics of how salvation works, synergism versus monergism and all that. And so, yeah, there are times where he comes across, and he very clearly affirms God's sovereignty and all those things, but he would just define it in a different way. I do think Calvinist... um, you know, the accusation of Pelagianism, which yeah. again, since then, in some sense, we you know earn our salvation of Arminius, is is clearly absurd. I mean, he flatly denies it. Now, a Calvinist would argue that it's uh, a good and necessary consequence, would be the phrase they use, of Arminius's teachings, even though he explicitly denies it. Mm-hmm. And that's a fine argument to make, the same way that, you know, I would say that um, uh, a good and necessary consequence of Calvinism is that God is um, not good. And again, Calvinists would deny that, but I can fairly say it's a good and necessary consequence of their constellation of beliefs. You can't not affirm that, in my opinion. Yeah, I got you. Um, one, one of the, 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 the main points that I get a lot for accepting Calvinism, and I'm kind of going off script here, so sorry, but anyway, um, and I just discussed this in a, in a podcast I did uh, earlier this week, uh, just myself speaking, didn't have an interviewee, um, um, was about um, that, uh, because you were talking about that they, they were somehow, the, the Armenian or the non-Calvinist would be somehow earning their salvation, and I think what the Calvinist means by that, when you get down to it, is that they view faith itself like if you have the libertarian free will to have faith of yourself in God that you are now meriting your salvation through your faith like God owes you salvation because you freely exercised faith and, and that I think is at, at, at the bottom what the error actually is um, I'm sure you do too uh, so so why why yeah. is that wrong why is faith not uh, uh, meriting or earning salvation that's the whole 
idea that God and humans are in some sort of causal competition is absurd. <laughs> and and and, um, and I say that too for a lot of libertarians who again libertarian free will, not libertarians, right? <laughs> who want to affirm that well, no, we make this decision, God doesn't make that decision. Again, classical theism has tended to affirm that free will is not something we can really understand very well. Mm-hmm. It's it's more concerned with emphasizing that. There's not a competition there where God determining something or us making a decision means that we would, you know, have some leverage to, you know, uh, boast in God's presence or something like that. Um, again, if if you have a basic belief in like creatio ex nihilo, which is that God creates everything from nothing, and not only that, everything continually exists as a free and gratuitous gift from God moment by moment. Right. There's just, what what are you like what is there to boast about like yeah. you literally your very existence is is predicated on the infinite generosity of God every single moment and so this idea that God creating some realm of created freedom okay where we can really make in some sense meaningfully free decisions would somehow give us leverage to boast before the God in whom we live move exist and have our being who sustains us every moment is just the most absurd accusation I've ever heard and, in my and that's, life. That's actually a really good point and, and uh, a good point for me right now because I've been reading some R.C. Sproul, believe it or not, to anyone who thinks I like to mischaracterize Galvinism. I specifically read them on purpose uh, and to interact with them, but uh, R.C. Sproul is just talking, uh, um, and this book didn't really have much to do about uh, with Calvinism, um, but uh, or Reformed theology, but he was just giving an argument for the existence of God and how uh, the, the Aquinas argument that God didn't just make it all happen a long time ago, and you know, it just kind of mechanically worked itself out this way. Uh, he he is uh, he is the cause of existence at every single moment, like you were talking about. And mm-hmm. then, so I was like, well, I, and I put it together like you just said it, and I was just thinking, but you're you're the Reformed theologian, you know, you're the 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 Calvinist or whatever in this uh, uh, side of things. So how do you not see that? Well, obviously we're not going to boast about anything because every single second of our existence is is uh, by the grace of God. Um, yeah, every second is creatio ex nihilo. Yeah, exactly. And then furthermore, um, I, w- I would say the non-Calvinist position uh, clearly affirms that um, God's grace in, in creation or in the atonement or in the bringing about and uh, giving, uh, presenting the gospel, um, those are at least three things right there that would uh, uh, prohibit us from boasting in our salvation like we did it ourselves. Like gr- God's grace, in other words, is both logically and chronologically prior, as I've heard it put um, by people who have better words than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just don't get it. I just guess you have to ignore that to be able to make that accusation. Yeah, it's it's um, a strangely reformed pathological obsession with the boasting thing. And again, like I, I don't I don't want to make a lot of it. Like there are some uh traditions within Christianity that have certainly been in something like the semi Pelagian realm. Like that's real. But again, classical Christian orthodoxy is so far removed from that accusation that it's just it's tough to take seriously when you hear it. About classical theism. Um yeah. Uh, so, do you view uh, this this ongoing debate, uh, ongoing debate and conversation as? Uh, I mean, clearly, it must be important enough that you would come on this podcast and talk about it and write a book about it and such. But uh, where where does it kind of rank? How important is it 
to uh, get this right, or would you would you actively try to talk someone out of Calvinism? Kind of where does it fall? <laughs> Man, so I've I've struggled so much with this question over the years. Um, at my church, so I'm the lead pastor at my church, but we have another lead pastor. So we've got two lead pastors, and the other lead pastor is a Calvinist. Um, and so I, you know, have to live this stuff out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Charitably being able to to disagree with somebody. Um, and so to the question of whether or not it's it's like a secondary issue is such a complicated question to me. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, um, it's an enormous issue because what's at stake is whether or not, you know, there's a God who, who, who looks like Jesus Christ. Um, everything is at stake. On the other hand, I have to acknowledge that within the big tradition of Christian orthodoxy, Calvinism from very early on has had a place. It is one way to interpret the data of Scripture that we're given. Um, and so I'm in a weird spot of having to go like, man, I really obviously disagree with it on the most level, and yet I have to concede that it has a place within the Christian tradition. Yeah. And I believe that enough to pastor a church with somebody who believes that. And so I never quite know how to answer that question. I, I just lay out the tension that, yeah. yeah, I absolutely try to talk people out of Calvinism. <laughs> yeah. But I also acknowledge that it, it has a place within the tradition of Christian faith, and you can make uh, a good biblical and theological case for it, even though I don't buy it. Yeah. Man, again, you're putting it exactly how I would, which is whenever I follow it out to its logical conclusions, I come up to conclusions, you know, like you're mentioning with the goodness of God and this God actually look like Jesus Christ. And then I, you know, I hear kind of uh, my mentors on, on my side of the aisle that are, you know, uh, you know, Southern Baptist traditional uh, soteriology or uh, classical theism or, or, or you know, non-Calvinist uh, theologians that will say, you know, more or less what you just said, but there there is room for them in here. And I'm just like, I'm gonna take your guys' word for it because <laughs> I don't I don't know how we can follow yeah. it out to that, those logical conclusions and then be like, yeah, you know, there's room for all of us. But you know, I want to. I really want to. I really want to say, you know, there's obviously room for us here. It's not a primary issue. Um, and I probably wouldn't even like uh, do podcasts and talk about this or write blogs about it or try to actively talk people out of it if they also felt the same way. Because uh, you know the non-Calvinist position is met with, uh, you know, quite the vitriol by the Cal- uh, some. It's not a monolithic group that I do have to kind of go. Well, I do actually need to write and speak and talk about this uh, because some people are, are you know pushing back pretty yeah. strongly. Um, well, it's distinguishing you know even within the Calvinist camp, man, like between um, fundamentalist Calvinist and then just Calvinist. You know, and yeah. fundamentalists of every stripe are mostly unbearable. Um, fundamentalist Calvinist, classical theist, open, you name it, fundamentalists are, are difficult. Um, and they're usually the most vocal yeah. and the most prone to argue. And so it's just remembering that, like, most of those really vocal fundamentalist Calvinists you deal with, they're not most Calvinists. Yeah. You know, like the guy I passed with, awesome guy, great guy, who's not like that at all. Um, and so it's just knowing that those people who want to argue with you, they're, they don't really even speak for the majority Calvinist position. Like, there's some great. Calvinist, modern Calvinist philosophers who people should read, like James K. A. Smith or Paul Helm. And they're just much more, man, articulate and thoughtful than the popular people that most people obviously read because they're popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reading those people, like, that's what I encourage you to do. Like, if you're going to be a Calvinist, then, then, then don't read, I'm not going to name names, but th- don't read some of the low level stuff. Read James K. A. Smith. He wrote a book called Letters to a Young Calvinist. Fantastic. Read stuff like that. 
Yep. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on and doing the interview. If you're still listening, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I uh, want to give a shout-out. Uh, kind of skipped this segment earlier, but I want to give a shout-out and a special thank you to our patrons. Uh, you, too, can uh, become a patron by following the link in the description and uh, 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 going over to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter of the show and the ministry and the work we do here. And you get access to the uh, five-more-minute mon- uh, five uh, bonus segment uh, with Austin Fisher, where I'm going to ask him a couple more questions. But before we get there, i got one last question for you, Austin, here in this segment. And that is, what would you say to someone um, that's listening right now that is currently convinced of Calvinism, uh, but, uh, you know, like you at one point in time, they're, they're having their doubts, they're hearing the other side, and, you know, some dots are no longer aligning like they once did. What would you say to that person? I think um, per some of the things we said earlier, it's important to understand that if, if you're having some qualms about Calvinism, and in particular, uh, an inability to reconcile it with the God that's revealed to you in Jesus Christ, then all you're doing is, is standing firmly within the historic Orthodox Christian tradition. Um, and so, to just realize that the faith, um, that the faith that, that Orthodox Christianity has, for the most part, rejected the central tenets of Calvinism, and I think that will probably give you like the space you need to go on a journey to ask yourself some really difficult questions about Calvinism that you need to ask and hopefully find a home in a theology that is, in my opinion, more beautiful and biblical. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much uh, for coming on. Uh, if you're listening, uh, be sure to pick up uh, Austin's book, Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed, and his uh, uh, second book, uh, Faith in the Shadows, which we're going to talk a little bit about in the bonus segment. I'll leave links to both of those in the description. Austin, thanks so much uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a pleasure.